Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. I just want to... Uh, I saw there was uh, like an outpouring for you on the tw- on on the Twitter about uh, your poor dog. Sorry about the loss of your friend, Bruce. Yeah, thank you, David. She was uh, she definitely reached the end of the line. She was 18 years old, which is a very ripe age for a dog, and she'd yeah. just been hanging on for a while. And the time had come, and it's very sad on the day. But you know, and today I'm feeling that we did the right thing. We done right by her. So. It's a good life for a dog, 18 years, as you say. It's still odd. Like, first time we haven't had a pet in our part of the house since uh, the 90s. And so it's strange to come into the house today and have no uh, furry receptionist, you know. But uh, I guess that'll probably change in due course. But uh, to lose both of them in, you know, a couple months apart, especially this year with, you know, being homebound and all that, it stinks. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. Well, the weather's finally turning, Bruce. Uh, the river's breaking up. There's mm. big patches of open water. Uh, mm. It's Things are changing. It's good. We need things to change. The sturgeon's opening up a little bit. Yeah. All right. So tonight uh, we're going to talk about some of the things we've been digging into in our latest posts. Or we'll dig into, I should say. But we're going to... So this is... You're going to do a... You're working on a post on Ken Holland's trade record. Yep. And I'm working on a post on digging into our uh, scoring chance data. And we're looking at um, not just the mis- how many mistakes the defensemen made on grade A chances against, but what kind of mistakes. Who made what kind of the, the mistakes that drive coaches crazy the most? And mm-hmm. those are those are things like, I think, I, you know, turnovers. Uh, that always bothers a coach. Missed assignments where you're leaving the guy wide open in the slot. Bad line changes, the top of our list and probably the top of most coaches' list. Weak back checks, bad pinches, allowing a breakaway, and lost battles to some extent. Uh, you know, they don't like to, you know, if someone gets whipped in a physical battle. That's never a good thing. So uh, we'll dig into that. Um, Bruce, I just want to talk, though, at first, though, Brian Burke and John Shannon were on orders now. I haven't done a post yet about it. I might still. Um, maybe I'll even do that tonight instead of the one I was planning, but they were both, Burke had been quite, uh, Shannon had been quite bullish on uh, the NHL coming back for the playoffs this year. I can't, uh, Bob Stoffer had asked a number of people what the odds were. I can't remember what Shannon said, but I do recall Burke being hopeful, of course, but saying they were pretty much zero uh, when he was first asked this about three weeks ago. And I, yeah. I think I was at, I was at 90% then, and now I'm at 99%. But, he uh, Burke seemed to be changing his tune just a little bit uh, on Oilers now, and talking about all kinds of different scenarios. As was Shannon, you know, it, Burke was talking about eight teams in the playoffs, perhaps not sixteen. That wouldn't be good, would it, Bruce? Well, I think we're kind of ninth place the last time I looked, so no, it might not be good. I uh, he talked about uh, you know maybe coming back in August. Um, <clears throat> Maybe coming back at, at a quarantine site for some first for some of the initial games. So it just seems like there's you know again he's really hooked into the NHL insider as as much as anyone. Uh, Burke has got to know his whole life, his whole social scene, and whole life to a certain extent must just be NHL people, right? Like he's yeah. like I think it was Mark Spector who talked about 
No, it was Al Strachan who actually talked to me about once, like this this little village of hockey people, and it's about yeah. 400 people, and they all know each other. So Burke, it, Burke's the town crier or something oh. like that. He used to be yeah. like the deputy mayor, and now he's, but he knows, and he's talking positively. So I took that as a, a good he's sign. Li- he's lived in all their houses, right? I mean, he was an executive <laughs> at the league level. He was a uh-huh. player agent. He was the GM of four or five teams. You know, he was even as a player, you know, in university hockey, captain of his team, you know, and sort of a, a go-to uh, throughput kind of guy. I mean, that's the thing about those kind of positions is that, you know, they, they, they talk uh, and they, they make connections. And clearly he has a whole boatload of connections in the game of hockey. How could he not? Yeah. So when he says something, when he's starting to talk yeah, more positively about it, I, 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 it's like, you know, of course, Elliot Friedman the most connected person probably in that, you know, in terms of he's like the newspaper man in that little village. And, uh, he, he was, he was talking about this quarantine idea. So it's just more bubbling along, uh, giving me hope. Um, and you know, again, I'm, I don't see any reason why this quarantine idea can't work. And Burke brought it up specifically playing in Mm -hmm. the flames versus the, uh, Oilers in North Dakota, a couple of games at least. And so we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Bruce, let's talk about your, do you, have, do you have any thoughts on that or do you want to move on to your? Well, I just, if, you know, it's like the old EF Hutton commercials, right? If when Brian Burke speaks, everyone listens. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he, you know, he must be hearing something. Now that said, I mean, there, we're all kind of on the outside looking in in terms of knowing what's going to happen next. I mean, even the politicians don't all seem to have a completely firm grasp on that. He said with tongue in cheek. They they don't. Oh, um, nobody does. Nobody I mean, does. No one can guess the future. So, or no one knows the future. We can all guess at it. Bruce, right. let's talk about your post, sure. the Holland Post. So you look, you're looking at Ken Holland's trading record, mm. both in Detroit and in Edmonton. How far back do you, are you going into Detroit? Uh, I went back to the trade deadline of 1998. So holy oh, moly. Oh, all the way back, just to see what his tendencies were. Did you see it? And, did you find that useful? Because it oh, changed, yeah. so much changed in in like mm-hmm. to go back that far. The rules have changed so uh, much. No, in I, terms no, I, I understand that. Okay, go. Yeah. I know you know that, but did did that not kind of nullify what happened before the seat, like the new CBAs were the, with revenue sharing? Well, it still tells you something about his tendencies. What's he doing at the trade deadline? Because this year he made. Uh, he made altogether officially six trades with the Oilers, and four of them were on the deadline. And that's been his past MO. He's, he does most of his trading uh, okay. at the trade deadline. And a little bit in the offseason and at the draft, he tends to swap a trade up or trade down, you know, just trading draft picks. Um, but um, uh, very, very little in the way of big player-for-player player trade. So, the, the you know, the very first, what remains his signature moment as GM of Edmonton Oilers trading Milan Lucic and his four horsemen of the apocalypse contract to Calgary for <laughs> James Neal. It's very much out of character for uh, for Ken Holland. It's, okay, it's what let's just stop. What are the horsemen of that uh, contract? Term Too much term. Cap no, hit. No movement clause. Bonus structure, no movement clause. <laughs> And you got you, you're hemmed in on all four sides. Yeah. 
it's like the old politician said when he was when he was caught dead to rights lying about something, and he said, "I, I feel like a dog that's surrounded by four trees. I haven't got a leg to stand on." And that's what the four horsemen of the apocalypse contract was. There was no way to get out from under it, other than somehow convince the player to accept the trade, and somehow convince some other team to take them. And Ken Holland managed to achieve both those things in his first summer on the job. So that was his signature moment. But that is not how he usually does business. He's done very few one-for-one, player-for-player trades over the course of his career. And when he has, it's sort of been second-tier players. You know, Jason Williams for Kyle Calder kind of stands out as, you know, an actual hockey trade where where it sort of equals trade. By far, his preferred trading uh, format is buyer to seller at the deadline, trading draft picks for a team that's uh, uh, out of it, out of the hunt, and loading up with rentals for the team that's in the hunt. And he did it over and over again in Detroit, and over and over again he picked up a veteran uh, defenseman. Uh, I mean, here in in uh, here here's a defenseman he picked up in his first six or seven trade deadline trades in Detroit, Jamie McCown. Dmitry Miranov, Chris Chelios, Ulf Samuelson, Todd Gill, Yuri Slager, Matthew Schneider. And all of them were over 30 years old at the time. And I mean, Chelios was 37, Samuelson was 35. You know, like these were not young men. These were ancient veteran defensemen. And you know what the first trade he made at the, as a trade deadline for Edmonton Oilers was? He traded for Mike Green, 34-year-old veteran defenseman just to shore up the back end a little bit like it just seems to be part of his philosophy you can argue whether it's right or wrong but you can't argue that he seems to think that it's important i'm not going to argue it's wrong and i'm going <laughs> to give you full credit for going back that far at this point because i'm dead wrong and questioning that like you clearly clearly yeah, clearly you found this tendency because i did a study on him just when he came here just as he was coming here mm-hmm. and i see what you're saying i i have all the dates of, but i only went back you know uh to 2012, I think. Let right. me see where I go back. 2011. Mm-hmm. I was looking more recent tendencies, right. and 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 almost all these trades: February, February, March, 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 February, February, March, first Mar- February, February, February. Like they're all trade that, and, and the interesting thing is, Bruce, in that time period, he starts out 2012 uh, to 2015, and he's the guy. Right. He's picking up that defenseman Merrick Zick Merritt. Merrick Zidlicki or Kyle Quincy or David 38 year old Merrick Zidlicki yeah and then <laughs> but then after that he moves to the he shows he's he can go the other he do the other thing and he becomes the seller Absolutely. at the deadline and every year for those f- following years he's selling 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 trading out some good players Thomas Tatar um Gustav Nyquist Brendan Smith, who is seen as a good player. I mean, and, and some of those trades were pretty good, Bruce. He got a oh, he got a, a second and a third round pick for Brendan Smith, who had a four million a year contract, but I think <laughs> it's just up now, and he's not done well in New York. Man, that was a great move, uh, getting rid of him. Of course, Holland's moves in Detroit in that last little part were not so good as as witnessed by Detroit's kind of historic one of it, like just such a stinker year this year that the, t- the team in those last years really did go down, but at least he was making the right moves to improve it, like getting rid of players that he could to get draft picks for the future. Well, that, that, I mean, he hollowed the team out and, and did the rebuild thing, and this year they kind of reached the uh, 
uh, the nadir of the of the rebuild, you know, in terms of the bottom falling out and them being really terrible, and they're going to get, you know, at least one very high draft pick out of that. But a couple things happened. I mean, first of all, they had that epic 25-year playoff run. Yeah. Uh, and right up to <laughs> right up to 2016, they were always in the hunt, and they were always looking to to consider themselves buyers at the trade deadline, even though even when it became evident they were a faint echo of the team they had been. Uh, but a key underlying factor there, now literally underlying, if you uh, want to push <laughs> push the metaphor, Mike Illich, the owner of the team who was dying uh, throughout the uh, early part of the decade. And I just, I, I was envisioning the scenario where I'm Ken Holland and I'm going to tell the dying owner that, hey, listen, sorry, Mike, you know, I know you like this guy, but we decided we're going to do a full rebuild and trade him off for draft picks. And uh, four or five years, we're going to be better for it. I mean, it just never happened. And the table that I've drawn up shows that great divide that you you talked about uh, with a black bar where Mike Illich dies on February 10th of 2017. And within three weeks, he traded Thomas Churchill, Brennan Smith, Thomas Bannock away from the Red Wings. And then the next year, he traded Peter Morazic and Thomas Tatar away from the Red Wings. And the deadline after that, his last in Detroit, he traded Nick Jensen and Gustav Nyquist away from the Red Wings. And he got a bushel of draft picks, a couple of young defense prospects, totally different from his usual 35-year-old guy. He went for, you know, 23-year-old Dylan McElbrath and 24-year-old Madison Bowie, I think, around those ages. And, and every year... Like they had six, seven, eight picks in the top 100 of the draft. Now, that's in the 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21 drafts. Those aren't those those picks haven't come home to pay dividends yet. But you know that they're flooding the system with young players, and and so when the shoe finally came onto the other foot after 25 years of Detroit being a good team. Uh, it was like Holland flipped the switch. And the other thing I noticed was all those guys he traded, with the exception of Thomas Bannock, Yurcho, Smith, Mrazek, Tatar, Jensen, Nyquist, every one of them was a draft pick of the Red Wings, developed by the Red Wings, came up through Grand Rapids, played two or three years in Grand Rapids, just like his master plan. They came up, they played in the Red Wings system, and they established themselves as um, uh, desirable at the trade deadline that teams wanted. They say, oh, that guy came up through the Detroit system, you know, and he's got, you know, uh, and so Detroit got, you know, six, seven years out of these guys as productive players. And just when they're, you know, when their contracts were coming up, they were probably going to lose them. Ken Holland was able to turn all these guys over into a, just a bush of, of first, second, third round picks. So uh, when the shoe was on the other foot, he wore it. And then this year coming to Edmonton, he immediately went back into buyer's mode because the team was in the playoff position and he made trades for three guys at the deadline and every one he gave away picks. So it was just the same trade, but in reverse, he was in the other chair. That was a really insightful comment you've just made about Holland's record with, with Illich. And, and this has been talked about before. He's he's alluded to it as well. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he, he felt this pressure being in the playoffs all those years in a row to keep winning and keep winning for that owner. Right. And you're right. Like, man, that's a, that really is a de- demarcation point when Illich dies, just the, the change of direction. Cause he yep. didn't make 180. 
Yeah, he 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 was still buying at the deadline at 2016. Traded a third round. No, that was in May. 20, 2015. So he, he was yeah. the last time he tried. That was when he bought so he, 36-year-old Eric Cole and 38-year-old Marek Zubluchy. He didn't really do anything at the 2016. So you could see probably he's thinking, oh, I really want to unload some guys. Maybe, you know, we can, we, we're, I'm just imagining this now. But you can imagine, you know, having the owner who wants to keep winning somehow. And, and the GM maybe wants to to move out some guys, but it's not yet possible. And it does put a different spin on that year, but it also like in terms of Holland's motivation, the fire to show that he can still do it. Yeah. Um, he, there might've been, he might've felt in his last five years and recognized that just the circumstances and dynamic on a number of different levels, both, both personal and the way the league is structured worked against him and he couldn't do his best work. He didn't do his best work, but he couldn't. Of course, it's really hard. Like, you know, we know from, from uh, you know, I keep referring to this great book, Ken Dryden's book, Scotty, where he talked about the Canadians dynasty. And every era where the NHL changes its rules on drafting player procurement contracts, the, the, te- the, the, the great team and the great GM has to change his tactics completely and come up with a whole new set of tactics that, that help you win. And it's never been harder, I don't think, right now than to, to maintain a winning team than it is right now. I, I, it's, it's so much more difficult than it was in the sixties. There's for one thing, there's way more teams, but the sixties and the seventies, it was in the eighties with the Oilers where you could keep, you had players, you had their rights forever, essentially. And it's just, it's very, very difficult now. So I don't know if any GMs have it, the market cornered on wisdom on what exactly to do right now. I don't, I think it's, it's never been more kind of up in the air, what best practices are, but I think Colin showed a few things. Uh, mm-hmm. with the Oilers um, that uh, shows that he's not past his, his, uh, his A game is still there. But his preference clearly is let's do the deal that makes sense for both sides. I can talk to the guy in the other position and say, well, here's what I got that's going to help you. Here's what you've got that's going to help me that, that you don't need right now because you're not even in the playoffs uh, and, or, or vice versa. But, but uh uh, the the one for one deal where each guy is trying to get the better player out of the other team, the more kind of competitive deal, that's not really his forte. So that's where the fact he was able to pull off this Luch deal right off the bat is uh, he was right out of his comfort zone when uh, when that trade happened. But uh, it happened. Yeah, in his last seven years in Detroit, he made just one real. Let me just see here, just one real player for. Well, no, there's two. Uh, he made the David Legwand for Kelly Yarncroft and Patrick Eves right. trade, and, and and that probably wasn't a very good that great was a trade. Bad, that was, that a, was bad. a bad trade. And then he made the uh, Eric Cole for Matthias Backman and Matthias Janmark trade. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's not his. That's not what he does. And uh, yeah, the Lucic trade. Well, thank, even though it, it's it's good that you can teach an old dog new tricks, <laughs> because that mm-hmm. was one hell of a trade, Bruce. That was one yeah. hell of a trade, and the owners aren't even going to lose their third-round draft pick. It looks like so. that wasn't that wasn't even player for player in the end, David. It was really contract for contract. So it's on a whole yeah. other level. Yeah, uh, you know, this was the kind of trade that would never have to be made in the 1998. So in that sense, you know, going back to there to compare, you wouldn't find anything that compared to the kind of salary cap hell. In, in 98, Detroit could have 100 million in salaries on their payroll, and there was no problem if they. And they practically did a couple of years. I'm sure they were over 80 million 
Yeah, they would have just had Lucic as a fourth line grinder, and, yeah. and that would have mm-hmm. been it, right? So, Set him down or what have you. Down. Yeah. All right. Anything else that you're going to be writing about? Any other? Uh... Uh, I may have a, a take a run at the contracts that um, uh, that Holland's done. I know you did at the time that he came to the Oilers. You looked at both these things, and my take has been, well, let's see what he does in his first year in Edmonton and sort of roll that into what his how he's done over time. And, of course, by now, uh, he's made those half-dozen trades as well as GM. Uh, he's made uh, the five or seven, depending on how you count them, contract extensions of uh, players that he signed, uh, either Chase Hunt and Carroll last summer or the five guys he, he signed throughout the course of this season, starting with Caleb Jones, uh, also Zach Cassian, Gustav Nurse. Uh, uh, Chin pad and of course the big Darnell Nurse uh, deal was uh, uh, was the capper on that. But he he uh, he's already got five of those contracts signed. And he's got another handful, you know, in his inbox right now. So it's it might be interesting to look at the deals that are done and the ones that are still hanging in the air and sort of have a quick look at each one. So. I'm thinking there may yet be a part five of the Holland Post. I find him fascinating. I've really found this interesting to to see how how systematic and professional he is, and how consistent he is in his dealings with uh, with players and and presumably agents, other GMs. Like he is he is who we thought he was. You know, <laughs> he, he he. There was a there was a lot of. Uh, a lot of disrespect for Holland when he came here from a lot of different quarters. If I, you know, from Euler, you know, factions of Oiler fans, there was, whole, you know, yeah. huge amount of doubt. And um, what, were you know, his, what were his peers saying in the, around the NHL? I bet there's a lot of respect for that guy. Yeah, well, for sure. And uh, I guess my only concern was like, how old is he now? He's younger than me, David. <laughs> By a month. Yeah. So well, he's my go, he's my con- he's my contemporary now. The only one left. I'm rooting hard for him. Yeah, but you're not running an <laughs> NHL team. No, um, all due respect. Not. No. <laughs> so no, it yeah, takes he's a tremendous an amount guy. of energy. My only my only takes a tremendous amount of energy uh, to do that, that work, and it's and it's just hard dog work. You got to really really want it. You have to have the fire in your belly. And it was interesting for him, like like we, like you do, Bruce, at your age, in your particular, in our particular walk of, walk of life. But he he, I didn't know, right? Like you just wonder, does he really have it? And he said he did, and he said that's why he took the job, and it was good. Seems to be working out so far. So, well, he's been very consistent, you know. And I mean, he said, I, I think in the post, you said you got to get more right than wrong. You know, you're never going to get them all right, and every once in a while, they're going to mess up, and you're going to trade Yali. Callie Yarncroft and Patrick Eves and a pick for David Legwand and pay David David Legwand and it's all going to go sideways on you. But uh, he got a lot right too in there and he he uh, and there wasn't a lot of deals where he gave away a player who then went on to really devastate them by becoming something you know by becoming you know reaching another level. So he he, yeah. he got value for what he gave up for the most part. I remember hearing once something like that, that raw human intelligence, like just, just our horsepower is never greater than, than like between the ages of about like 20 and 35, mm-hmm. but wisdom, human yeah. wisdom is never yes. greater than between 50 and 70. So he's, he's still in that ballpark and uh, 
He seems like he knows what he's doing. All right, Bruce, let's talk about the Scoring Chats project that you and I were involved in this year. We reviewed by video all uh, grade A chances for and against the Oilers. There was about 10 10 for, 10 grade A chances for per game and about 10 grade A chances against roughly. Uh, With the Oilers, they were pretty even in that category. Um, So one of the things we did this year... uh, it's really the first time, as, as long as I've been doing the Scoring Chats project, I keep learning new things. I mean, I'm not, I don't have a, any kind of training in, in science, right, and how to, how to do this stuff properly. So it takes me a lot, it's taken me a while to figure it out, but, uh, and how to track the results properly. Uh, but so now we've done a lot of coding with our results, so we can easily track, we not only track the mistakes that the players make, uh, we track their, uh, what, what kind of mistake did they make? Was it a, did they just uh, allow a pass into the slot or allow a slot shot, which are kind of the basic mistakes. Those are the, the two most common mistakes is you, you just, you, you get beat. beat. You allow the pass, you allow the shot. But then there's other kinds of mistakes. Uh, turnovers, lost battles, missed assignments, bad line changes, weak back checks, bad pinches, and allowing a breakaway, which we've also, which we all just, we thought, let's let's break out some categories and see, see what we did. And we coded it so you can search searchable and easily, uh, you can add it up instead of like I did. I did track this stuff in the past. I could just never mm-hmm. add it up because I didn't have the code. Yeah, we always had the same, much of the same lingo. I mean, we talked about hard charges at net and uh, uh, yeah. weak back checks, and you know some of these same words. But this year we 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 picked a handful uh, at each end for and against, and maybe what ten different ways that players could contribute, good or bad, and coded them so that you can now search for the code and you're going to find uh, all the plays for a certain player, uh, as long as we didn't make a coding error, right? But, I mean, we're going to get, we're, we're going to get almost all of them in there and, and uh, uh, some interesting results here, David. And, and I should say, if anyone uh, listening to this just wants the, the, the raw data, we've published it many times and just email me or contact me on Twitter and I'll po- I'll send you the link because it's uh, anyone can search it for whatever they want as far as I'm concerned that's what it's there for so the process this year was I would usually I would usually be me I would not always but I would usually do the first assessment of the game and then you would do a second assessment of all the scoring chances and the assignments right. and essentially uh, we would usually generally agree but in 20% of the cases whatever there'd be a disagreement we discuss it and then you would have the final say the veto so so there was it was kind of double subjective like it was it took away some of my subjectivity and replaced it with your own but we were hoping to balance out that subjective element that way all right um so what we're left with with we're going to talk about the defenseman today uh and just generally speaking when it came to mistakes against at even strength two defensemen stood out as being superior to the other defensemen at even strength. And one of them especially stood out because he played almost always, he played hard minutes. And this is, uh, I think if I was to make an argument, who is the most underrated Edmonton Oilers hockey player? It's and, and, and this includes me underrating this player. Mm-hmm. Adam Larson is the most underrated Edmonton Oilers hockey player. He made the fewest, uh, Major mistakes on grade A chances against an even strength. He made 1.11 per 15 minutes, which I say is per game. It's kind of a um, synonymous for a game, 15 minutes equivalent. Close Close enough. enough. So 1.1 per game. 
And next best, Chris Russell, 1.2 per game only. Uh, and the, all the other defensemen are around 1.4, Jones, 1.42, Jones, Clefbaum, 1.47, Nurse, 1.47, Bear, 1.57, Benning, 1.55. Right. So they're all between 1.4 and 1.6, and Larson's considerably lower. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a very significant difference. He, he, Bruce, he's just, he is a solid defensive hockey player. And I think if if the Oilers were to lose him at this point, and it's a possibility with the expansion draft coming up, man, they'd be thinking, we need another, we need another na- nasty, mean, safe, tough, effective defensive defenseman like Adam Larson. Yeah, what jumps off the screen here with him is, uh, I mean, when he does get beat, I mean, he allows a pass or he gets a shot, the shooter gets away on him, gets the shot away. And as you say, those are kind of the fundamental things. I mean, at the other end, we're counting passes into the slot and shots from the slot. So this would be the equivalent of that. But when it comes to um, mistakes like turnovers, I mean, he had two that we counted, two turnovers that were turned into a grade A chance for the other team. And this compares to numbers like uh, 12 for Clefbaum, 17 for Bear, 17 for Nurse. I mean, these are huge discrepancies. Uh, similar with lost battles where uh, uh, defenders were uh, uh, Bear, Clefbaum were over 20. Again, two for Larson, where we, by our uh, style, hello, kitty, by our standards of, um, of, um, of counting that Larson lost a battle that resulted in in uh, uh, in a shot or just one missed assignment. And again, I mean, these are subjective ratings, but you and I are both looking at these things and a missed assignment is when a guy kind of blows it and he's just out of position. And Adam Larson, uh, that was not a common uh, a common problem for uh, for Adam. So uh, he kind of looked after, this tells me he looks after the details of the game. And the, uh, uh, you know, the meat and potato stuff, maybe, you know, he gets beat the same rate as the other guys, but he doesn't give away much for free. The coach has to love that. I mean, look at yeah. look at his turnovers. Yeah. Um, two turnovers yeah. uh, leading to grade A scoring chances against, whereas Nurse is at 17, Bears at 17, and Clefbaum 12. Now, right. they all played a, a bit more time. Uh, quite a bit uh, more time on ice, but not not yeah, double. Okay, he missed. Yeah, he did miss. Uh, but uh, he few just weeks, right? he just he just doesn't make that play and lost battles. Bruce, he mm-hmm. had so he had 892 even strength minutes. He had two lost battles leading to grade A chances against. Whereas Clefbaum had 22, mm-hmm. Bear 21, Nurse 13. Now, so Nurse, I'll give time on ice. Nurse, uh, 1,445. Bear, 1,375. And Clefbaum, 1,196. So they played a bit more, but two compared to 21 or 22 in yeah. terms of lost battles. Like, Matt, he, he's got, he's fundamentally solid. He's got sound defensive position. He has it consistently. And no wonder the coach likes, I think cat <laughs> Jim, no Jim, Jim Playfair and, and Larson maybe got on the same page too like I'm not sure Larson didn't uh, continue to improve this year as it went along hello kitty so he uh, uh, but he, he sure didn't give away much for free 
And that's yeah. uh, that's my takeaway from this chart. Yeah, all the you know, Bear, Clefbaum, and Nurse, their numbers are all really similar in a lot of ways. There's not a lot to pick from there. They're like they, I, what I noticed is generally the bottom defensemen, the, the top defensemen are more prone to making turnovers. Mm-hmm. And oh, the one other thing they did stand out was Joel Pearson. And if you're ever wondering why Joel Pearson never made it, his rate of making turnovers per game leading to great A chances was was almost double. Like you know. Uh, Right. Some, it was like 0.3 per game where where other guys are at 0. 0.15, 0. 0.7, or 0.07. He just made way too many. And his lost battles is also extremely high. He just right. wasn't defensively close. Mm-hmm. This really, it just jumps out at you. On these kind of plays that drive a coach crazy, he was making them all the time. And not surprising that he didn't last uh, with Dave Tippett. He, you know, they, they gave him a shot. They gave him 195 even strength minutes, but he... He just, just these turnovers, lost battles. He just couldn't cut it. If you're a great puck mover, you can live yes. with some of that. Yeah. But I'm, he never came across as a, you know, and like he was efficient moving the puck and that, but he didn't ever come across as being a, you know, a plus plus uh, offensive or, or, you know, even breakout passer or anything. And his weaknesses in the def- defensive zone uh, that we kind of feared when he came over. Uh, you know, having played in the third division in Sweden as recently as a couple of years previous, um, and they did get exposed to some degree, and I think our analysis uh, puts some numbers on that. I mean, the other two, number, go ahead. Two sorry. Mis- sorry, two mistakes per 15 minutes. You know, he was like a, uh, 0.5 ahead of all the other guys or behind them. And again, Larson, the team leader, was at 1.1 per 15, and yeah. he's at two. And and the worst guy on the team, a small sample size, was Manning and Brandon Manning in 99 minutes, 2.4. We better just, trade for that guy. I couldn't believe, oh. like Tippett stuck with him. <laughs> that was when I thought, like, don't play him ever again. Like after about yeah. four or five games, like he just, it was clear he couldn't keep up, and yeah, he was just leaking great a chances against uh, at a brutal rate and mike green uh he only played two games but he made he was at two per game so i i'm not <laughs> i'm not sold on mike green yet well he'll have to come in here and play a little better than he did i don't see him i don't see any argument personally at this point if they make the playoffs for playing green in the top six i think it would be a big mistake honestly so um we'll see what happens in that regard Alrighty, Bruce. Well, um, I think that's it. We'll uh, we'll uh, be back probably probably Monday, I'm guessing, for the next podcast, mm-hmm. Monday or Tuesday. But uh, we'll be uh, you'll be continuing on your Holland series, and I'll I'll All be right. analyzing the forwards in terms of this this okay. statistic as well. Sounds great. Yeah. All right. I'll be another two three days along on the COVID beard. You know the the hermit look. <laughs> I think probably there's a lot of men doing that just now. Yeah. You look like okay. Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> Malinowski. <laughs> All right. Thanks for talking, Bruce. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>